listening to Small Talks and City Blocks, a podcast production of Women in Cities International. I'm Hannah McCasland. I'm Bethy Monsignor. And I'm Maxine Dannett. We host conversations about gendered experiences of city life and the work being done to promote inclusive and equitable cities and communities for all. In October of last year, the World Design Summit took place in Montreal, bringing many urban planners and designers of all kinds together to discuss their innovative practices, ideas, tools, and the future of design. One of the themes was design for participation, with such topics as landscapes of power, designing for spatial justice, and inclusive designing practices, all topics of interest to us here at WeSee. Our first conversation was with Jennifer Fix, an associate in urban planning and design at Dialogues Vancouver Studio. At the World Design Summit, she gave two talks entitled Femopolis, Cities for Women, by Women, with Women, and Engaging as if Cities are for Everyone. So we talked with her about a participatory generative design that involves the community and her conception of a Femopolis, a city where women are the protagonists. So we're here at the Women in Cities International office in Montreal's Old Port with Jennifer Fix. Uh, Jennifer, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit, um, giving us some information about your talks at the World Design Summit? Sure, and thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be thank here with you. you. Uh, so yeah, as, as was mentioned, I'm an associate and urban planner with an integrated design firm called Dialogue. Uh, we have four studios, one in Vancouver, that's where I work, um, and we bring together landscape architects, architects, urban planners, engineers, and interior designers to solve design problems for clients. Um, so the two talks that I had the chance to deliver at the World Design Summit were uh, around engagement generally, and then uh, the other one was around women in cities. So the first one um, around engagement was uh, looking at how we engage all people in the process of city building. Uh, so increasingly there's a recognition that in the city building process we need to be engaging the voices of all people. Um, and uh, what we wanted to do as part of our talk was um, explore the ways in which we've um, not just approached it as a thing we ought to be doing, but approach it um, from a place of appreciating that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in the community. And as consultants, as designers going into community, we certainly do bring some expertise, but we aren't the only experts. We aren't the only voices that need to be around the table. So we talked about a few projects um, we did on Vancouver Island where we, where we took that approach. And the second one uh, was, uh, yeah, called Themopolis. And it was this um, exploring this imaginary place where the woman gets to be the protagonist of the city. Um, so where her contributions and accomplishments are celebrated in monuments, in street names, in building names, in public art, uh, where transportation systems and public spaces are designed with the unique experiences that women have in mind, uh, and where women are around the table, the leadership table, when around, in the city building process and making decisions around how we shape and build our cities. Sounds like a nice, a nice, a nice world or city. <laughs> yeah. um, that actually really, I think, leads into some of our questions that we wanted to ask you um, about bottom-up approaches and how partnerships can be built with professionals, but also people at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And so, if you could speak to that, and also maybe um, kind of add to that with how, in particular, we might have strategies for including women from diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
also not only just, you know, women who are most often heard and listened to, but maybe other women um, as well, like, who have disabilities or who mm-hmm. um, are, you know, don't have that class or race privilege? It's a, that's a great question, and I'm still exploring that myself. I recognize that as a woman, I don't represent all perspectives, of all female perspectives, and even in talking about women as a group to be planning for, um, I recognize that we run the risk of um, reinforcing this two-sex, um, this binary uh, gender division, which you know further reinforces gender stereotypes and roles. So I want to acknowledge that as well, that we recognize that gender is a spectrum. Um, and then, yeah, I also recognize my privilege. I'm um, able-bodied. I'm um, uh, of European descent. Uh, I've never experienced poverty. Uh, I um, uh, identify with the gender uh, that was assigned to me at birth. So these are privileges that I carry that not all women do. So I want to absolutely recognize that. Um, and so in terms of engaging other voices, uh, and I'm by no means an expert, but some of the tactics or techniques that I've seen work well in the past include ensuring that, for example, in a stakeholder conversation, that you have those voices represented at the table. So reaching out to some of those grassroots organizations um, in a design charrette for a neighborhood plan process I've worked on in the past where there were a lot of sex workers uh, mm-hmm. living and working in the neighborhood. We had a sex workers advocacy group around the table sharing those perspectives so to have those voices there. Um, and another uh, important way I think to reach out to some of those voices is to go beyond the traditional, traditional means of engagement. So when we talk about community engagement, I think it often conjures up images of people coming out to an open house or filling out an online survey. And those are great ways, certainly, to reach out to people. But the reality is a lot of people don't have the time, the uh, confidence, or even the literacy to engage in that form of uh, process. And so what we often will do is take the engagement out to the people. So I've gone, for example, to... uh, um, Uh, groups and programs where women are there with their small children as part of a support group uh, context or uh, we've worked with a municipality in um, in BC that um, as part of a citywide planning process for an official community plan uh, they uh, recruited and uh, brought together individuals who represent different demographic groups within the city so it was balanced in terms of gender it was balanced in terms of ethnicity in terms of age and that group worked with the municipality and with us to then go out to their various communities to get input. So in this particular community, um, it was there were a lot of Sikh people, and so we worked with that uh, the Sikh um, participants uh, on that in that uh, committee to go to, for example, uh, Sikh temples and to have all of the materials translated into Hindi and to seek input from women and men that way. That's really interesting. I really like your idea of the Thermopolis. <laughs> yeah. Um, in what ways do you think that? the cities that we live in now, not necessarily Thermopolises of the future, <laughs> um, are gendered? And what kind of projects does do you do to kind of rectify this this gendered imbalance in cities? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so we know from research that women, on average, experience the city differently than men. 
So we know that women are more likely to experience poverty. We know that women are more likely to be caring for sick or elderly relatives. They're more likely to be caring for children and doing uh, more housework. Uh, they're twice as likely in the United States to be escorting their children to and from school. And as a result of these things, they have different transportation patterns on average. Women ha are more likely to have complex trips. So rather than going from point A to point B, they're, they're doing multiple trips. They're more likely to take transit, but they're more likely to travel by foot. And of course, we know that women are more likely to experience sexual assault in public spaces. So women do experience the city differently. And there are different, uh, different cities that are trying to tackle this. I would say a leader in the world is Vienna. Mm -hmm. um, you've heard about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, in the early 90s, um, some female city planners within the municipality uh, had a photo exhibit called, um, what was it now, Women, uh, How Women Use, or Who Owns Public Space, and they followed women from all different backgrounds around the city to see how they interacted with city spaces, and there were, di you know, diverse um, ways in which women used the space, but the two things that were kind of commonly held or commonly experienced across the diverse uh, women were um, concerns around safety and a desire to travel with ease and comfort around the city, which they felt maybe wasn't happening. And so from that photo exhibit, uh, there was a tremendous amount of interest. 60 pilot projects emerged, and one of them which I think is quite compelling, and it was a project that was led by women for women, and it's called Frauenwerkstatt, which is Women Work City. And it was a project that uh, it was an apartment complex um, that uh, was based on evidence-based designs. They looked at national statistics around, for example, how do women spend their time? And they found that women, on average, again, spend more time doing with, with childcare. So they designed the the um, the apartment cluster uh, around a public open space that their kids could play in, that they could watch with the natural surveillance from the from the apartments. They also co-located daycare and doctor's offices, um, ensured that it was in close proximity to transit. So it was it was basically just good design, but was done through the lens of gender. And so they arrived at an outcome not by accident that was good for women, but intentionally good for women. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Go Vienna. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a couple of things, like even just articles about like citywide praise of Vienna. I don't know. They're so progressive. Yeah, just and mm -hmm. kind of a lot of talk about like gender mainstreaming as kind of just exemplified there. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't have the as much of a perspective to know if that's like actually accurate, but <laughs> they, I think they are, yeah, in the gender mainstreaming world, they're definitely at the forefront. Berlin has also done some interesting things. They've developed a handbook around um, design measures that foster safety for women. And it looks a lot, if you're familiar with crime prevention through environmental design principles, it's very mm -hmm. similar to that, but it's again done with the gender lens and they apply that handbook to all of their municipal projects. Um, Umia, Sweden, is also a thought leader. They've done some interesting things around safety and going beyond design. I think we do run the risk when we think about how do we can we design cities to be better for women. We need to also be talking about the root causes. So why is it that women are faced with violence in public spaces? Um, it's, and so Umia, Sweden, as part of a, a major project, they launched to develop an underground tunnel. Um, beneath the highway and uh, railway for pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, they actually held uh, workshops with all people to talk about gender and gender and space as a way to build capacity around that issue in, in the designing of the, of the tunnel. Have, like, yeah, 
a lot of questions. I think that was a really great point about, you know, we also need to be asking, like, why is there violence against women in public mm-hmm. space? I, I feel like just this past week with um, the whole, like, Me Too campaign yeah. and all these discussions about sexual violence, I think that people are, are thinking about that a lot right now. Um, so I think that's a really good point that, you know, it doesn't just, like, start and end with how these public spaces are designed, but there's mm-hmm. also a reason that there's the violence there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of reminds me, when we were doing research on the talks that you were giving, um, the one about engagement in As If Cities Were For All, mm-hmm. I think you said, so... Cities of the future must embrace the needs, aspirations, and participation of all of its citizens, including minority groups and quieter voices. This requires engagement that transforms and decentralizes power within the urban design process. Um, So maybe could you expand a little bit on what you think this decentralization of power looks like, both within, as you mentioned, the design process, but if you want to tie it to kind of larger larger context as well, that would be great too. Sure, yeah, so I think... Um, traditionally, uh, in a design process, it's often starts and ends with the expert. So the expert, whether it be a municipal official, a municipal planner, or the consultants, and I'm a consultant, <laughs> and I get hired for my expertise, that's my job, um, but for the experts to go into a design process with a great deal of curiosity and humility, recognizing that the, the communities with whom we're engaging are actually the experts and they're best suited to know what is best for them. And so for us to bring some technical expertise, but to facilitate that conversation and to leave a legacy that is their own and not our own. Um, And so to offer a couple of examples in which we've tried to do that, try to facilitate um, an inclusive process uh, that puts the community at the center of the conversation is a project we did in Tofino at the, I don't know if you're familiar with Tofino, it's it's the westernmost community on Vancouver Island. It's next stop Japan. It's a a town of 2,000 people. And we were brought in to help them revitalize their main street. And they um, were concerned about the fact that, well, they weren't concerned about the fact that their community was changing. They were recognizing that there's a lot of change happening in their community. So traditionally, it had been a resource community. It was surrounded by three First Nation communities, and they all, you know, all uh, worked um, in the resource industry. But there's been a tremendous amount of tourism um, that's been transforming the place. The tourism industry is exploding, as so there's been a lot of growth. And so they wanted to manage that change in a way on Main Street that aligned with their values. So we were brought in to help revitalize it, um, uh, to deal with the issue of um, uh, the fact that it wasn't very walkable, felt very unsafe for pedestrians, there were no sidewalks, for example. So I went in as an expert a few years ago, um, and I love, uh, a passion of mine is walkability and, and designing communities around people on foot. So I got there and I immediately thought, okay, the solution here has got to be sidewalks, people can walk safely. Um, we're right on the edge of the ocean and in storm season, which is you know several months of the year, you feel very exposed to the climate conditions. And so I was thinking, okay, well maybe some weather protection, protection like trees would be appropriate here, street trees. And then the third thing I was thinking we needed to tackle was this issue of parking. It was just overrun with cars. And I thought, okay, we have to just scale back on the parking, displace the cars and put in more infrastructure, more facilities for pedestrians. Um, but before, you know, before we did the design, we, we went through the engagement process and we used film uh, where we uh, met with uh, a real broad cast of characters in the, in the community, so business owners, 
longtime residents, visitors, um, members of the neighboring First Nations to ask them about their stories about Main Street and their, their aspirations for Main Street. And so we wanted them to be the storytellers. We wanted to show that film to the community so that when we explored issues and opportunities, it was not coming from us, but rather the community. And what I learned from that process was that I was completely wrong about my preconceived <laughs> notions about what the design solution should be on Main Street. So I heard from the community, um, okay, big city girl, uh, we are surrounded by old growth forest. Putting in street trees will only block the view. So that's nutty to, to suggest that. The second thing I heard was we actually don't want city sidewalks. We, we, we like the fact that we're this... Um, have a small town character, and we want pedestrian facilities, but we don't want the, we don't want to look like a city. So we need to do something different. And the third thing I heard, and this came from um, one of the indigenous communities, was you know we've been parking our canoes here for thousands of years, and uh, frankly, uh, we're not you can't tell us not to park our cars here. They, for them, it was important to have their cars there because when they arrived from the neighboring islands by boat, they needed to get into their vehicles to go access groceries and other. Um, other services. So all of the things I thought coming into the community without having the expertise of having lived there were wrong. And so, uh, and I think through the process of storytelling and film, we were able to get at those outcomes more readily. And uh, another example I can offer is uh, we're working in a community, another community on Vancouver Island, and it's a partnership between a municipality and the neighboring First Nations, the Stinias First Nation. And, uh, and we were brought on board to work with both communities on arriving at a plan for the waterfront. And uh, typically in a design process or design charrette, or workshop, design workshop format, there's usually people sit sitting around a table and an expert designer holding, holding the pen, holding the marker, and they're the ones creating the design, listening, and then creating a design. Which, if you have a good designer who's a good facilitator and a good listener, can do justice to that process, but we wanted to take it a step further and make sure that everyone around the table was able to participate equally. So we brought in um, tactile supplies, we brought in plasticine, construction paper, um, little wood products, wood blocks, and we invited everyone to co-design the space. And it created a level of comfort and confidence among everyone, even people who didn't have design literacy or who weren't comfortable working or familiar with working in a design context, to put their ideas down there and to work together to do that. Um, and then from there, we were able to take, you know, then the designer could step in and then further evolve it. Um, so that was one technique we used to kind of decentralize the design process. And I was wondering whether you could kind of speak to your own experience of being a woman in the urban planning field and uh, what kind of challenges you face and what kind of like successes you've had. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the numbers, so I've done uh, some number crunching in, in Metro Vancouver, which is where I live and work. 2.4 million people live in Metro Vancouver. 51% of them are women. Uh, uh, if you look at the percentage of women um, or percentage of the students who are in the planning program at U in the University of British Columbia, uh, for the last 10 plus years, it's been 55% more or more have been female. Uh, and the same applies for the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, I think with the exception of one year in the last decade. So women are outnumbering men in these programs. And then, but when you look into the, into the workforce, so we know in the last uh, census, um, I think, 42% of people identifying urban planning as a profession in Canada are women. 
And then when you look at the leadership positions, the people who are actually making decisions about cities and how, about how people inhabit them, it's, it's, it's a very different picture. So uh, there are 21 municipalities in Metro Vancouver. Uh, of the ones that are large enough to have planning departments, uh, only about 25% are headed up by women. And then if you look at the large cities, so the cities where you have more than 100,000 people living, where most of the people reside in Metro Vancouver, is down to about 17%. And if you look into the private sector, which is where I work, th those are the sorts of numbers you're seeing in terms of the women who are principals or partners who are on the leadership table in firms. And a lot of these firms are, are teaming up with municipalities to do the city building, to do the city planning and the design. Um, so uh, I know, and when you look into the research around, well, why is this the case? Why are, aren't these women in place? And there's been some interesting um, studies done uh, by, for example, the Architectural Institute of the uh, America and similarly in Canada. And these are some of the reasons that they, they list, women list around why they either leave the profession or why they feel like they're not advancing. So they feel like they're getting lower unequal pay. Uh, they feel like um, the hours are long or inflexible, not conducive to, not family friendly, not conducive to having a family. They find that sometimes they're sidelined to doing limited areas of work where there's a certain um, protective or paternalism happening in the workplace. Uh, stressful working conditions, ma uh, ma macho culture and sexism. This is more around the world of architecture, I should say. Uh, lack of returner training after maternity leave, slow rates of promotion, and lack of female role models. Um, I was intrigued to see in my own firm, uh, we have about 52 partners, and I think we have about eight of, about eight of them are women. And so I was keen to uncover some of the reasons why, this, why there was this lack of balance. And so I interviewed uh, last year about uh, 10 women of all stages of, the, of their career and all levels of the hierarchy within the firm. So I spoke with partners, I spoke with associates, and I spoke with staff. I spoke with architects, I spoke with landscape architects and planners and interior designers. And I heard a lot of things. So the, the question I asked, I asked three questions. The first question was, um, do you feel like being a woman has shaped your professional trajectory in any way? Second question I asked was, um, currently there's not a, a balanced, uh, we don't have a balanced um, male to female ratio among our leadership. Why do you think that is? And the third question is, what advice would you give to our leadership team in order to remedy that? balance. And so the four themes, the four pieces of advice that came out most strongly were one, so take off the blinders of unconscious bias. And this is recognizing that in, whether it be hiring practices or mentorship, like prefers like. The second thing we heard was to create equitable opportunities, recognizing that the playing field was not equal. One of the architects um, acknowledged, a female architects acknowledged that a lot of business development happens with developers um, by socially going out for drinks. And she said sometimes she'd propose um, a business development opportunity, but it would be taken the wrong way. And so she would encourage male partners when they're networking to bring along women so it didn't create an awkward situation for them. The third thing we heard most strongly was to broaden the narrow view of what a leader looks like and acts like. So it's not the macho alpha male who necessarily um, has capacity to be a leader, but rather a greater diversity of, of personality and people. And then the fourth thing I heard was, don't make career and family a mutually exclusive choice. There's a perception that you can't both have a family and a career, or that you need to design the workplace uh, in, in a manner that, um, whether it be hours or scheduling or flexibility in a way that allows people, not just women, but men and women both, to, um, uh, to have a family and to excel professionally. 
Wow, that's so interesting. I feel like that applies to so many fields. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure, I agree. Like, every field. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What would public space ideally look like to you? Well, within the context of the imaginary Femopolis, um, I would like to see women's contributions and accomplishments celebrated um, in public art, in the naming of streets, in the naming of monuments, in the naming of buildings. Um, I would like to see us think about in our design process how women's unique experience with space um, can be considered in the design, so some of the safety issues we've been talking about. Um, But I think most importantly, I think we need to be in our design process engaging the voices of diverse women at the outset of projects to ensure that those viewpoints are driving the design. about Jennifer Fix's work, follow her on Twitter at J underscore Urban Fix. Link is in the episode description. You can learn more about Women in Cities International at womenincities.org and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We want to hear from you. What does your ideal city look like? Let us know on social media and use the hashtag Women in Cities. Check out writetocampus.com slash alternative resources for a list of helpful resources in Montreal for safety in public space. Our thanks to Jennifer Fix for joining us. This podcast is produced and hosted by Hannah McCasland, Bethy Monsion, and Maxine Dannett. Music is by Cole Zweber. This podcast was recorded in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Montreal is located on unceded Indigenous lands. This has been a Women in Cities International production. Thank you for tuning in to Small Talks and City Blocks. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and give us a review. Check back next week to hear our conversation with two architecture historians from McGill University.